On the night between October 29th and October 30th, 1998, the unthinkable happened. A fire started in the premises belonging to the Macedonian Association, where a disco for teenagers was taking place. 63 kids between the ages 12 and 20 lost their lives that day and over 200 kids were physically injured. It turns out not to be an accident. Someone actually started the fire. But who and why? Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla. I want to thank all of you who took the time to write me a five-star review on iTunes. That means so much to me, and it helps out the show. It's kind of funny, because I only thought that I had one review from a Swedish person. But it turns out that iTunes only display reviews country by country. So the only thing I see on my phone is the reviews from Sweden. And when I realized this, I went to my computer and I found out that I had reviews from the US, from Canada, from England, from New Zealand and from Australia. I'm amazed and I'm so, so grateful. Thank you so much. I'm just going to give a little shout out, first of all, to Jim from the Forgotten News podcast. Thank you so much, Jim, for supporting me, and check out his podcast, it's great. And thank you for the five-star reviews to LionRock71 from the US, and also Lauren from the US. And thank you to Hannah from London, and thanks to Tracy Ladylock from Australia, and to Corey from Australia for your review and also for your support on Instagram and Twitter. Corey runs a great blog with tips about podcasts, among other things. Check it out on cjnetme.wordpress.com. That's cjnetme.wordpress.com. Thank you also to Tay, Janet Snakehole, and Iman Risu15 from Canada. You guys are great. You can always reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And if you want to give me something for Christmas, please tell a friend about this podcast. That would be the greatest gift. Well, enough of the business and let's get started with today's case. This all started with some guys who were around 20 to 21 years old and wanted to do something to make some money. They had arranged smaller parties before, but wanted to make something bigger, and they started to look for a location that would fit their purpose. They soon find that the Macedonian Association had a place that would be perfect to arrange a disco in. 
It was located in an industrial area in Backaplan outside Gothenburg. So they didn't have to worry about neighbors being disturbed by the loud music or anything like that. This place was perfect. When they rented the place, they told the owners that they were planning to have a private birthday party. That wasn't completely the truth. They put up flyers and word about the party spread fast. They were aiming for about 150 people. They were going to have an entrance fee of 40 Swedish kronor, that is about $5. I haven't been able to find out how much they paid for the rent for this place, but if 150 people came, that means $750. But there were almost 400 people who came to this party. When they met with the owners of this place, they were showed by the owners how they could move all the tables and chairs to, and put it in the stairwells to make more room for a dance floor. This is what later led to this being the most fatal fire in Sweden's history. I'm going to try to describe this place so that you can get a feeling of what it looked like. This is an old industrial building that is connected to other buildings. But this place contains of one big room upstairs. And leading up to this big room are two closed stairwells, one on each side. The one on the left-hand side was the one used as an entrance. And the one on the right is kind of in the end of the building, not as visible as the first one, and is only used as a fire escape. Or should have been used as a fire escape. It's kind of a high brick building, with windows in the big room that I talked about, but no windows at all in the stairwells. If you stand on the ground outside the building, it's a little over 16 feet, or 5 meters, up to the windows. And on the inside, the windows are placed high up, a little over 7 feet from the floor. So when preparing for the disco, the guys that arranged it did what was suggested to them by the owner and moved all the tables and chairs to the stairwell on the right side of the building. This made it impossible to pass through there. They also placed a table directly inside the entrance door where a guy was going to collect the money for the entrance. There wasn't a lot of space there to begin with, but after the table was placed there, there was only a gap that was two feet wide to walk on. Two feet equals about 60 centimeters. The disco started at 9 p.m. and people arrived and started entering at that time. When they came upstairs, there was a small room that was acting like a wardrobe for jackets and stuff. And when entering the larger room, there was a DJ booth, like up on a stage on the side, and also a small bar. I just want to be clear here, there was no alcohol served at all that night. The disco was attended by kids between the ages 12 through 20 and the rest of the floor was acting as a dance floor. 
The DJ also had a lot of blinking lights going on and also one of those smoke machines to try to make it seem more like a real club. The guys who planned it were, as I said, aiming for about 150 kids. But people kept coming, the word had really spread, and there was a line of people outside waiting to get in. It was really a success. At about 11.20 p.m., four guys that I'm going to call A, B, C, and D arrived. They knew the guys who were arranging the disco and demanded to be let in without paying. But the guys told them no. Everybody has to pay, they replied. Remember, it was only $5 to get in, not so much money. But after arguing for a minute or two, one of the guys said in a very threatening voice, this is later found out that this was C who said this, I'm going to fuck this party, and then he left. They were really pissed off about this, as they saw it, a disrespectful treatment. And they started to talk about how they could ruin the party. They came up with the idea that the youngest of them, the one I called D, was going to go in and pay the entrance and then let the rest of them in by opening the back door. The guy I called D went inside and then he went towards the other stairwell. But when he got there, it was full of tables and chairs, but he somehow managed to climb over everything and get to the back door and unlock it for his friends. But when they saw that there wasn't so easy to get, get inside, one of the guys got another idea. Let's start a fire. They found some paper lying around and crinkled it up and then put it under one of the wooden chairs. One of the guys took a lighter out of his pocket and started the fire. They did the same thing on a couple of more places. And then they closed the door and left. Upstairs, the disco was ongoing, the music was loud, and people were dancing and enjoying themselves. It started to become very crowded, but not worse than in a regular nightclub, I guess. Two girls smelled smoke a few minutes after 11.30 p.m. They went up to the DJ and told him. He started checking his equipment, maybe something was overheated. And then he walked around the dance floor, but he didn't find anything. He thought that maybe somebody had smoked inside or something. But after a few minutes, the girls came back again, this time saying that it really smells like smoke from a fire. He again walks around a little bit. He reaches for the door handle on the door leading to the second stairwell. And as he pushes down the handle, he burns his hand and the door flings open. Black smoke started to sip out right away. The DJ returned to the DJ booth and turned off the music. He used a microphone to make the following statement. There's a fire. Everybody needs to leave the building immediately. But don't panic. Take it easy and move towards the exit. But what he didn't know was that they were still letting people in downstairs. 
The people working the entrance had no clue that there was a fire, so they kept letting more people in. And remember what I said before, they put a table right inside the entrance that only left a two feet or 60 centimeters wide gap to walk on. By opening the door to the back stairwell, oxygen was added to the fire. The firemen later said that if nobody had opened that door, the fire would probably have died out by itself. But now, with the door wide open, the fire just exploded like crazy. People were trying desperately to get out, while the people in the stairwell still were unaware of this fire and was trying to get upstairs. You are now going to hear some witness statements that I got off a memorial website for the fire victims. Let's start with Amanda. Here is her story of that night. When I arrived at the disco, there were more people there than what I thought it would be. This was supposed to be a private party. More and more people came, and I wondered how many people this place could actually hold. We were dancing and had a great time, and then the DJ said, here's a song to all you girls out there, and he put on the song, The Boy Is Mine, with Brandy and Monica. But about halfway through that song, he turned the music off and said that there's a fire, you need to get out, take it easy. Everyone thought this was a joke, and one of the guys went up on the scene next to the DJ and started singing, I'm burning for this permanent. Uh, a little side note here, this is a line from a song called Vinden har vent by a famous Swedish rapper called Petter. The song title translates to The Wind Has Turned, and the line that that guy started singing was like a signum for this song. Well, back to the story. This guy gets up on stage singing, I'm burning for this permanent, which makes everyone laugh. The DJ then grabs the microphone again, saying that there is a fire, and that it is serious, and that people must get out. Then I smell the smoke. I was in the middle of the room and couldn't locate where the smell came from. I started to panic. Then people around me started screaming and running for the door. Everyone ran at once. Since there were so many of us, the door got jammed. It was like a human plug of people in the doorway. That's when I saw the smoke. It was now everywhere in the room. And I also saw the fire. Then the light went out, and people panicked even more. Everyone was kicking, screaming, and pushing to get closer to the door. Then people started falling. The ones who had fallen were stepped on. They had no chance of getting up again. I thought the door was closed because there were not many people getting out. And a little side note here from me. 
the door was not closed. This door was like a normal door that you find in a private home. It was only about three feet wide. And also adding that people were still trying to get in. The stairwell outside this door was also jammed with people. Now back to Amanda's story. I thought the door was closed because there were not many people getting out. I had a feeling that something was going to happen to my friends, so I hugged and kissed some of them and told them that I loved them. They said that they loved me back too, and then we were separated by the crowd. I ran towards the entrance but fell and ended up on the floor. A guy grabbed my hand and helped me up. Everyone was fighting for their lives in there. It was awful to see. People died in front of my eyes. My friends. At this point, there were several piles of people around. The piles containing both dead people and those who were still alive. At this point, the firemen had arrived. But the worst thing was probably the smell. It smelled like burned meat. The smoke was suffocating me, and I screamed and cried and were desperately trying to breathe. I felt as if I had been laying in that pile of people for years. I could only move one arm and my head. People kept pulling my hair and grabbing me, trying to get out and up. Everyone was screaming, heartbreaking screams. Phones were ringing everywhere around me, but no one answered. I thought that, now I'm going to die. This is it. It's over. This is Armageddon. The screams around me started to die out, or maybe I just got used to them. I passed out several times, and was so scared that I would pass out and never wake up again. I screamed for my friends, but everybody was screaming, so no one heard me. I was almost giving up. I was half unconscious when I felt somebody started to pull me out. He pulled and pulled, and I screamed and screamed. I looked up, and it wasn't a fireman. It was a young man, a very strong young man. The door was opened, and I fell downstairs before I got out. When I came outside, my first thought was to go back in, but I was burned and I didn't understand what was going on around me. So they took me to the hospital, and I have no memories of this. It's all like a dream. When I woke up, I was in the hospital, a friend lying next to me. She told me what had happened. I couldn't take it in. It was so unreal. Someone said that I was one of the last people who got out of there alive. The pictures that came into my mind, they are still there. I think of my friends, how they scream and fought for their lives. I wish I could turn back time. I cry every day and almost never go to school anymore. I go to the graves and spend time with my friends' families. I miss them so much. I hope they wait for me up in heaven. I'm never going to be happy again. 
I cherish the friends I have left, and I love them more than ever. The memories are always going to be there. My soul hurts. But someday we will meet again. Always on my mind, forever in my heart, I'm gonna miss you forever. Amanda. This was written on January 28th, 1999, only three months after the fire. And I also want to share another story with you. This is Parinas story. Hi, my name is Parinas. I was in the fire on Bacaplan. I was there with my basketball team, Sael, Saie, Golsa, and our two angels, Mona and Sanas. We had so much to look forward to. We found out about the party the same morning. Me and my sister went into town to try to find something to wear. We also met Mona in town, and after that we went home to get ready. When the hours were coming closer to the time for the party, we asked our parents if we could go. Sometimes our mother would not let us, but at this night she was tired and she said it was okay. But we could not stay the night at Mona's as we usually did when we went out. That was strange. After that, our friend Saie came and we prepared for the party together. Before we were to leave, our father asked us to sit down. He's not usually scared or concerned when we go out. He asked us if we knew what to do if some guys came up to us and tried to rape us. We just laughed and said that we knew karate. But then he said the words that I'm never going to forget. He said, What do you do if there's a fire? You cannot do anything. You are going to get trampled down. We just laughed at him and said that we're not going out to war, Dad. We're just going to a disco with our basketball team. When we got there at about... 10 past 10 p.m., we met up with Mona and Golsa, as planned. And when we got inside, Sael and Sanas was already there. We did have our doubts about going in, because there were so many people, but it didn't stop us. When we got inside, we went over to sit down next to the stage and the fire exit. Some went out on the dance floor and some stayed to keep the seats. At about 11.30 p.m. I started to smell smoke and I told Sanas. She just said that she played with a lighter and that it wasn't anything to worry about. But after about 30 seconds, the DJ said that there is a fire and we then saw smoke by the fire exit. At first, we didn't panic. We were all standing together putting our coats on, and we started to slowly go towards the exit. We were in good spirits, and we were joking, but then the lights went out, and the panic set in. I couldn't see my friends or my sister, and then I fell down. Then I knew it was over for me. 
I fought and tried again and again to get up, but every time I got somewhere, someone stepped on me or pushed me down. After a while, I realized that there was nothing I could do, but I still wouldn't give up. I tried to crawl forward, but my shoes were stuck. I tried to get them off, but it was impossible. But after some more kicking, I finally managed to get them off, but then it was too late. I started to fade away. I got a really nice feeling of calm and peace. I didn't hear the people screaming and crying around me at this point. The next thing I remember is a cold wind and light. A firefighter had found me and he thought I was dead when he carried me outside. My sister had seen me laying on the ground and tried to wake me up, but I was unresponsive. She asked for help, but they said that I didn't make it. But somehow, the angels were on our side that night. Two unknown guys came up to my sister, and they took me to the hospital. I was in intensive care for two weeks, and then another week in a ward. They didn't think I was going to make it at first, but somehow, I did. But I lost everything I believed in, in there. My best friend for eleven years and I lost myself. I don't know what to feel or think. We went to the Netherlands to help some teenagers that was in a fire. It was hard, but it also helped me a bit with my feelings. I finally found something good in this whole thing. I didn't tell the whole story here, all the details. Most of the memories are buried deep inside me. But I just want to say this, the people that got out of there and all the parents and friends of the victims, you are the strongest people I know. And I think that our beautiful little angels, Sanas and Mona, are very proud of all of us. I want to thank my friends, God, the hospital, the firefighters, the two boys, my beautiful sister, and last but not least, my parents. Thank you for everything you have done. Love and kisses to everyone, and keep on fighting. Paranas. This was written on December 13th, 2001, three years after the fire. The last survivor story I have is from a Swedish podcast on this case, where Parash Lama told his story. Parash lost his older brother, Norden, in the fire. Parash couldn't find his brother, Norden, so he and his girlfriend at the time were lying behind the bar, trying to shield themselves from the fire, the smoke, and the crowd. He remembered that he heard that the smoke is more dangerous the higher up you get, so he decides to remain as close to the floor as possible. They started crawling on all fours towards the entrance. He could feel something running from his nose, from his mouth, and from his eyes. He also says that about this time, 
It felt like somebody had turned down the volume. Everything gets quiet around him, and he can hear the fire cracking behind him. When they get closer to the entrance, they see a door. This is the room that acted as a wardrobe and where people could leave their coats. One of his friends had been working there earlier that night, so he decided to open the door. Inside, he sees silhouettes of people leaning against the wall, appearing to be sleeping. He quickly closes the door again. They now have about four to five yards to the entrance door. His girlfriend suddenly screams that she cannot move. Somebody is holding on to her hair. It's then it dawns on him that they are actually crawling on top of other people. And that the somebody who was grabbing her hair was probably someone who just wanted help. He gets up to try to lift his girlfriend. And when he's doing this, he inhales so much smoke that everything starts spinning. The next thing he remembers is when he wakes up outside in the parking lot. Parash's girlfriend was also brought out to the parking lot, and she survived as well. Let's go into the details on the things that happened that night. The first call to 112 SOS Alarm, that's Sweden's 911 number, is received at 11.42.02 p.m. The operator who answers the call understands the word fire, Macedonian association, and Plan. The caller didn't know the address, so it takes them a little while to find it. The closest fire station gets this alarm, and it's classified as a big alarm right away, and they are quickly on their way. About four minutes later, at 11.46 p.m., the number of people who had called SOS Alarm are so many that other fire stations are automatically notified. The first firefighters arrive at the scene at 11.49.50 p.m. That is seven minutes and 48 seconds after the first call came in. This might seem really fast, but the fact is that the fire station is located only one minute away from the disco. The firefighters quickly realize that the focus now is not on putting out the fire, but to get people out, to save as many lives as possible. At 11.57, the paramedics on the scene asked for buses to be brought in to transport those who were not so badly injured to the hospital. Remember, there were over 200 teenagers that required hospital care. Ambulances from all over Gothenburg is called to the scene. The ambulances drove back and forth to the closest hospital. They used this tactic called load and go, just to get as many as possible to the hospital fast. Five minutes after the fire started, about 130 kids were outside. And after five more minutes, that is 10 minutes after the fire started, about 220 kids were outside. 
but there were still about 150 kids left inside. Parents started to arrive at the scene at about midnight, some of them to pick up their kids as planned, and some of them after receiving calls from concerned friends. Try to imagine this scene. You arrive to pick up your kid from a party, and there's a massive fire and chaos. It must have been horrible. At half past 12, the paramedics on the scene report back to SOS Alarm that at least six kids had died and that they had over 60 injured. But that is far from where it's going to end up. At 2 a.m., the fire was out and almost all the victims had been taken to the hospital. I think the firefighters and paramedics did a wonderful job that night. I cannot imagine how hard it must have been for them, too. You are now going to hear how one of the firemen described that day. They got the alarm and jumped into their gear, and when they were getting into the fire truck at the fire station, they could hear over the radio from one of the fire trucks already on the scene. He was saying, Oh my God, now they're jumping through the windows. Remember, those windows were a little over 16 feet up from the ground. They realized then that this is serious. They rush to get there, and at first they have problems finding the place, but then they see all the people standing outside. And he is then thinking that everyone is out already. Because normally when a fire starts in a place where people are awake, Everyone is able to get out, but unfortunately this is not the case here. They then put the fire ladder, the fire escape, against one of the windows, but they are not able to go in at this point due to the thick black smoke coming out and also due to the extreme heat. So they back away a bit from the window and start to hose water inside. Then they see something moving inside, and they at first think it's colleagues of theirs. So they stop the water not to hurt anyone. But it's not firemen, it's teenagers still trying to get out. The leader of the fire squad realizes that they have to try to get in through the door where people are still coming out from. He runs in there and up the stairs, and the doorway is clogged up by people, so there's no way to get through. Some are still alive, and they are screaming for help. He then starts to drag bodies out of this pile, one by one. He had a back problems for years after this. But what a true hero. And then he asks some of the kids nearby who are unharmed to help. And they make a chain of people. And they just pass the bodies from person to person, one after the other. He drags them out and the guys carry them outside. At the same times as this goes on, 
one of the other fire trucks moves to another window where they are again going to try to get in. This is further away from the fire and is possible to go in this way. So one of the firemen enters and he thinks that these windows are like normal windows that would be about three or four feet from the floor. But remember, this is an old industrial building, so it's actually over seven feet to the floor. So he falls. But as it turns out, he doesn't hurt himself at all. And the reason for this is so gruesome. He doesn't hurt himself because the floor is covered with bodies. He lands on kind of a carpet of bodies. His colleague outside hands him a ladder to put on the inside to help people get out this way. He cannot even find a spot on the floor to put it on. But somehow they manage to get it down and a lot of people are rescued this way. The ladder on the fire truck was beeping constantly, warning that the load was too heavy. But there was nothing to do about that. They just had to let people get on it anyway. The firefighter also tells about what happened later in the rescue process. An industrial fire fan was brought in, and it removed the smoke so that it was possible to see inside. The firemen were just grabbing whoever they saw were moving or seemed to be still alive. They also say that normally when they go into a building, they have a hose or a rope or something to bring with them. This is to be able to find the way out later. But nobody had time to think about that at this place. The focus was on saving as many lives as possible, and their own security had to come second. It was hard for the firefighters to be able to see who was alive and who was not. So if they were unsure, the person was carried out anyway. This resulted in at least 20 dead bodies being carried out. The last part of the carrying was done by young men who were friends and family of the victims. Such a completely unreal situation this must have been for them. And this fireman also says that some of the kids who had fell early on and have had their faces towards the floor were actually alive. So after removing dead bodies that were on top of them, they found people who were alive underneath. But finally, they realized that after getting about 20 to 30 yards inside that room, that there were no more survivors. They then told the teenagers who were outside that there were no more victims to carry. They didn't accept this because they still missed some of their friends. There has to be more people inside, they said. The firefighter then had to tell them the truth. There were no people alive inside. Two of the guys started running inside, but they quickly realized that he was right, and they turned and went outside again. 
The firefighters then opened the door to the small room that I talked about before, the room that acted as a wardrobe that night. The room was about 13 feet long and 10 feet wide. In that room, they found 26 dead teenagers. They were all lying on top of each other in a big pile. No one inside that room had been burned. They all looked like they were just sleeping. They then heard several phones ringing inside. Almost all of the kids had cell phones, and their parents are trying to get a hold of them. They then had to create a collection point for all the bodies. The fireman describes that this is highly unusual to have to create a special area where you place dead bodies. They are trained for this, but no one had really done it in real life before this. They lay the dead bodies in rows in a room, and the phones kept ringing in their pockets. On the question, do you ever think about how many lives you saved, or can you only think about how many you lost that night? The fireman answers. I heard we saved about 60 people that night, but the feeling when we left that night was of total failure. So many kids had died. One of the paramedics describes that he at one time was working on a kid outside when some other kids came carrying a person who they put beside the paramedic and demanded that he help that person instead. It was obviously a brother of one of the young men. The paramedic looked over at him and quickly realized that he was dead. And then he told them there was nothing he could do for him. He's dead, he told them. The brother of the dead person then hit the paramedic in the face. The paramedic says that he doesn't blame him for doing that. He understands his frustration and why he did what he did. But they had to work under horrible conditions that night. 213 teenagers needed medical care. A few had only inhaled a little smoke and was easy to treat but a lot of them had major damage to their lungs, and a lot of them were also burned. There were also those who jumped through the window and in the fall broke several bones. Injured were transported to Salgrenska, which is, which is a large hospital in Gothenburg, but they had no possibility to treat everyone. Kids were taken by ambulance or by helicopter to almost all the hospitals in Sweden, and we also brought some kids to Norway for treatment. To sum it up, 60 kids died on the scene of the fire. Three died later in the hospital. 213 kids were injured. Of those, 150 were admitted to the hospital and 74 kids had to be treated in the intensive care unit. But then you also had 63 dead teenagers that had to be identified. To be able to do this, they collected their personal belongings and put them on trays. 
It could be things like a watch, a bus pass, jewellery, a key, a cell phone. One mother describes how she walked into this room with 63 trays and was shown the one that they thought were her daughter's. On it was a hair clip, earrings, a bus pass, and a set of keys. And yes, they belong to our daughter. She then describes how she was brought to the morgue to identify her daughter's body and to see her a last time. She says that her daughter was beautiful, not burned at all. Her hair was a bit curled and her skin looked like she had been tanning. But both of those things was because of the heat during the fire. The police get involved right away. They have reason to believe that the fire was started intentionally and not by, a, by an accident. The reason they believe this is because the fire spread so quickly and was so intense. They start questioning people right away, and during the first week over 150 questionings are held. The four teenagers that arranged the party was arrested for involuntary manslaughter due to them letting more people in than they were supposed to and also for putting furniture in the hallway of the fire exit. And this might surprise you, but the parents of the dead children actually objected to this arrest. They told the police through this association that they created that they thought those kids had suffered enough. The prosecutor decided not to press charges against the four people arranging the disco. In the end of May 1999, about seven months after the fire, the police arrested two boys that were attending the party and who was seen close to the stairwell where the fire started. They were later released without being charged. It's later found out that one of the witnesses pointing in their direction was actually one of the guys who were later sentenced for this. So he tried to put the blame on someone else. And even though the police had all the resources they needed, they didn't find out who might have done this. And when a little over a year had passed, the Swedish government put out a reward of 3 million kroner, that's about 118 US dollars, that would go to the person or persons who could give information that would lead to the ones who started the fire. So on January 3rd, 2000, three boys were arrested. This is A, B, and C. And it's now been 14 months since the fire. And in the beginning of February, they also arrest the guy that I called D. After they were arrested, there were several attempts to start fires in A, B, and C and D's relatives' homes. Someone obviously wanted revenge. This is also the reason why I don't want to use their names, 
and instead call them A, B, C, and D. I don't defend what they did in any way, but I also don't think that attacks on their families are justified. The trial started on May 3rd, year 2000, and it had to be held in an exhibition hall and not in an actual courtroom due to the number of victims. And even though this place was much bigger, they still had to split up the court in three different rooms or halls to get everyone in. This has never happened in Sweden before. You usually have one or two plaintiffs in a trial. But here, there were almost 400. The two rows behind the four perpetrators were empty. No one from their families came to show their support, neither did their friends. The reason for this is probably because of all the threats against their families. The four on trial is A. He was 19 when the fire was started. B, who was 18 when the fire was started. And C, who also was 18 when the fire was started. And D, who was only 17 when the fire was started. A, B, and C were friends before this happened. And D was living in the same apartment complex as C and was trying to become a part of this group. All four were born outside of Sweden and came to Sweden between 1991 and 1992 due to war in their home countries. All four of them were brought up here in Sweden after that. A was before this convicted for assault and battery when he tried to help his younger brother who was being attacked by Nazis. B was before this convicted for attempt to manslaughter when he, his brother, and another relative hit a man with a piece of wood that had nails in it. C was before this convicted of robbery, stealing, and assault and battery. D had no prior criminal record at all. C admits that he was the one who started the fire, but withholds that they never meant to hurt anyone. They only wanted the fire alarm to go off so that the party would be cancelled. D starts to tell his story, and it goes like this. He opened the door to the others in the stairwell, thinking that they would let people in there for half the price of what was charged in the other entrance. But when they were in there, they found a container of liquid, and he thought they were going to sniff it to get high or something, but instead the liquid was poured out by C. They collected some trash, and then C made like a torch out of paper and lit the fire. They stayed there for about 30 seconds. When they saw the fire building up, they left. C almost tells the same story, only details differ. A and B doesn't say anything at all. A father of one of the victims, Moa, tells his story in court. And in his voice you can hear that he is so close to tears. He says, The asphalt was black 
cold and moist. And on it, after an inhumane waiting period of hoping and praying, two sweaty and dirty boys laid down my beautiful little girl, her lifeless body. She was still warm. She could have been sleeping. But her eyes looked like broken mirrors. And behind the mirrors, there was nothing left. Life had escaped her. Moa was no longer there. She couldn't hear me call out for her. She couldn't come back to me, who loved her so much. Nothing that I did that night helped. Moa lay there with black grime in her nose and foam coming out of her mouth, suffocated by fire gas, barely 16 years old. On June 8th, the verdict is read. They are all convicted for arson. The sentence for this here in Sweden is between 6 to 10 years or life. The law says that people under the age of 21 should not be sentenced to life in prison. But this is what they got. A is convicted to 6 years in prison. B is also convicted to six years in prison. C is convicted to eight years in prison. And D is convicted to three years in a youth treatment facility. The reason for this is because he was only 17 when this crime was committed. They appeal the sentencing and the new verdict is almost the same. The only difference in the sentencing is that A and B, instead of six years in prison, get seven years in the second conviction. And when I researched this, I could see that D is now working and haven't committed any more crimes. He's leading a pretty normal life. But when it comes to A, B and C, Two of them are still committing crimes such as assault and robbery, and the third one I didn't find anything on. In 2001, the award is paid out to five witnesses that made it possible to find the perpetrators. Their names are never revealed due to threats against them from the perpetrators' friends. Three years after the fire, the place had have been renovated and is now a memorial site where you can see pictures of what it looked like after the fire. You can also see things like keys, bus passes, hair clips, cell phones, shoes, and other things that have been donated by the parents of the victims. School classes are brought here to learn about how fire works and what you do if you're ever caught in a fire. On the 10-year anniversary of the fire, a monument was put up near where the fire took place. It's like a memorial wall, 
made out of blue-grayish polished granite from Norway. The names and the ages of the victims are engraved in gold letters. It's really beautiful. 63 young people lost their lives that day. 63. Every single one of them is missed by friends and family. To honor the victim's memory, I'm now going to tell you their names and their age. And I do apologize in advance if I mispronounce any names. I really tried to get it right. Haval Abdallah, 15. Ali Reza Abedi, 17. Ali George Abraham, 17. Osman Muse Adam, 16. Rabia Amich, 16. Amanda Advova Akiani, 17. Jane Liselot Rosita Andersson, 16. Hermes Barhane Gerbemeskel, 18. Lars Magnus Bernsson, 16. Camilla Frida Pia Blixt, 16. Paraskevi Vola Boras, 17. Robert Andreas Karlsten, 19. Gustavo Eduardo Carvajal Galvez, 18. Mohammed Sadik Selik, 20. Shemus Selik, 17. Shirgil Aman Kohan, 18. Mikael Den Constella Wilson, 17. Nabil El Sharif, 18. Farsad Faravashi, 17. Nasser Geramiari, 18. Thor Ragnar Graf, 17. Babak Hashemi Karmustai, 15. Mohammed Shino Hashi, 17. Ahmed Mohammed Hassan, 19. Ahmed Abdelai Hussein, 17. Alain Giaconelli Andriini, 17. Duska Janjus, 15. Hanna Josefin Jarepalm, 15. Gilsad Javaherina Sab, 15. Alvaro Alonso Jerez Reyes, 19. Eva Jevaris, 17. Svetlana Jorba, 15. Mirko Jovanovic, 17. Hanna Ninva Kalium, 16. Bejan Karimi, 15. Femi Kurtesi, 17. Norden Lama, 19. Elisaveta Lipsitz, 15. Maria Goretti Lindbeck, 15. 
Ricardo Lopez Tavares, 18. Ahmed Mohammed Ali, 16. Gilda Andrea Mohatet, 16. Yasmin Aneska Morales Penalillo, 17. Mona Nahani, 15. Amir Hassan Nami, 18. Sofia Charlotta Nilsson, 17. Rahel Ogba Mikkel, 16. Moa Hillevi Papini, 16. Regina Carmen Petrara Rodriguez, 15. Nathanael Ramos, 16. Christian Räfling, 18. Meriam Shakir, 17. Jasmin Shakir, 12. Linda Angelica Skog, 14. Irma Silvia, 15. Soran Stevanovic, 18. Therese Anna Marie Svensson, 14. Inger Lisa Johanna Söderberg, 16. Sanas Tabatabai, 14. Idris Uflas, 15. Emily Pilnes, 14. Marta Jalsin, 16. Edip Birtan Gilmas, 16. May you all rest in peace. This case was really hard to do. It's always hard when children are involved, and here there were so many families that was destroyed. And all the kids who survived but lost their friends, and all the kids that survived but saw awful things that night. One girl who survived said that she went to nine funerals in one week. Nine funerals. I haven't even been to nine funerals in my whole life. I think you never really get over a thing like this. If you were there, you can never make the images go away. My love and thoughts go out to everyone who have lost someone that you loved. That was the case of the fire in Gothenburg in 1998. And now, with Christmas just around the corner, be careful with fire and candles and make sure that your smoke alarm has fresh batteries in it. And to end this in a more positive note, not that I really feel like it right now, but here's this episode's little fun fact about Sweden. In Sweden we have something called Namstag, which translates to Names Day. This means that every day of the year has one or two, or sometimes three, names beside the date in the calendar. So, for example, my name is Pernilla. 
Pranella is celebrated on May 31st. To me, personally, it's not a big deal. But to some families, it is a big deal, and they give gifts and almost treats it like a mini birthday. And some people tag all the Annas they know on Facebook when Annas Day is up. And if you wonder, it's on December 9th. Other countries that also has this names day thing is Finland and Greece. They think it started in the Christian tradition way back and was uh, to begin with the names of saints and martyrs. And by the way, here in Sweden, we celebrate Christmas on December 24th, on Christmas Eve. With this, I would like to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a nice holiday weekend. Thank you so much for listening, and I see you next time. Goodbye. Hej då!